The letter to the Hebrews, in some ways, for modern ears, is somewhat abstruse. It deals with animal sacrifices, priests, and the ritual of the temple in old Israel. Indeed, some have said, and I think with a measure of truth, that to understand it properly, you need to have a thorough grasp of the Old Testament book of Leviticus. However, the context which it addresses and the themes which it presents resonate very strongly, I would suggest, with our life now in the 21st century in the West. It was written to a church or churches, the members of which were facing intense pressures to revert to some form of Judaism. They were Hebrew Christians, and the pressures on them were quite immense, and in fact, quite tragically, many of them had in fact done so. They had renounced the Christian faith, and those who remained were facing very much the temptation to follow suit. And in our own day, in the postmodern West, we're facing new, for us, and quite acute problems. Not only is the question of objective truth up for grabs, but the world has moved on to an overt expression of a worldview which is entirely hostile to the Christian gospel. We have no need to point to expressions of that in terms of marriage, the intolerance of the supposed tolerance of postmodernism, the degeneration of public discourse, perhaps aided and abetted by social media, the, the coarseness of the world around us, and the fact that perhaps the one element which is unacceptable in our world is the expression of the Christian faith, which claims that God has spoken, that the gospel is true at all times and in all places, regardless of context, that is not acceptable in today's world. And we're seeing that on almost a daily basis, in case after case. And so there are pressures upon Christians to keep quiet, to stifle the expression of the Christian faith. And indeed, it has a chilling effect. I've noticed that, having lived 28 years in the United States, where people openly were expressing their um, Christian allegiance. Uh, in a barber shop, you could talk about it quite willingly and openly, and you come back to this country and strong Christians keep, have to keep quiet. It's had a chilling effect upon life in the United Kingdom. It has blunted the witness of the Christian church in England and Wales and probably in the rest of the UK. So there's a certain resonance then with the situation in the first century to these people who, to whom letter to Hebrews was addressed. Growing marginalization, possible persecution. And here we find in the passage we had before us, 
Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, a twofold exhortation by the author, which in many ways is expressly designed to counter these problems. Two main exhortations. An exhortation in the first instance to resolute faith. <clears throat> Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. Having therefore a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold fast, hold firm, grasp firmly our confession. The writer goes on to explain why he can give such an exhortation. Firstly, because of Jesus' exaltation as high priest. We can hold fast to our confession because of who Jesus is and what he has done. He has passed through the heavens. Now, let's transport ourselves back into the first century, the TARDIS, and find ourselves there. And there's the Day of Atonement. The high priest, he alone can go into the central, inmost part of the tabernacle once a year. And there on the Day of Atonement, he, having cleansed himself and offered uh, the, the ritual sacrifice, enters the Holy of Holies behind the, this veil and he disappears from sight. The sight of those who can watch. And later, after he's conducted the business uh, in the innermost part of the tabernacle, then he reappears, the atoning sacrifice having been made. Jesus, however, Jesus is our representative with God who is immeasurably greater than the high priest in Israel, greater than Aaron ever was. He is offered a sacrifice, one sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. And he has disappeared from the view of his erstwhile contemporaries. He has passed through the heavens he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He, the one who lived and moved amongst his disciples, is now at the right hand of God. And he, of course, will reappear too in a greater way than those high priests did. He'll return to bring about the consummation of salvation at a time which God has appointed from eternity, which is fixed, which is coming, and to which we are heading inexorably according to the destined purpose of God. He has, in other words, ceased, on his ascension, that regular interaction which he had with his contemporaries, with his apostles, with his disciples, the kind of interaction which, in which we engage from day to day with those around us. That's ceased. He is no longer 
in our particular locale. He has instead moved to God's locale, to God's place. He is at the right hand of the Father, in the realm of God, transcending all bounds of time and space. As Paul could say in Ephesians, he ascended far above all things, that he might fill all things. Or, in the words which he himself used to his disciples, before he ascended, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he said. Our high priest, the writer says to the Hebrew Christians, is not one who simply comes back to his own situation, a fallible human being who with all the foibles and faults and sins which humans have, our high priest is at the right hand of the Father. He has passed through the heavens. He's in full and complete authority over all the universe. Why, therefore, why, therefore, even contemplate for a single moment any form of slackening of devotion to this one, any temptation to revert to your former way of life or your former beliefs, when you have one who is at the right hand of God. Moreover, not only should we hold firm to our confession, because Jesus is now at the right hand of God, because he is the Son of God. He has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Jesus, the human Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of human flesh and blood, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of the Father. He's the one who reconciles humans with God because not only is he one of us, but because he is the eternal Son of the Father, the one who, with the Father and the Spirit, is eternal. He is the creator of all things, the sustainer of the universe. He is one of the Holy Trinity. He is the living God who is now also man. How on earth, the author is saying, how on earth can you even entertain the notion that there is any possible alternative to what you have already embraced in Jesus Christ. He's now crowned with glory and honour, he says in chapter 2. He is therefore able, he is able to reconcile us to God. He is able to send us grace and mercy at the time of need because he is the Son of God. Because... As Cyril of Alexandria, one of the great theologians of the early church said, one of the Trinity, mark this, one of the Trinity died on the cross according to the flesh. Who is Jesus Christ? What is his personal identity? Who is he? He is the Son of God. 
He is one with the Father from eternity. The one who is life itself, who has taken our nature in his incarnation. He is therefore able, able to help, to save, to deliver us, to reconcile us to God, to grant us everlasting life. Moreover, he's qualified to do so. Not only is he able, he's qualified. You see this, as the author says, having therefore a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in all things like we are, yet without sin. The author's using a figure of speech common in those days, and it's not unknown to us as well, whereby he's actually affirming something by denying its opposite. Like you would say, perhaps, in certain cases, something was not bad, meaning very good. What, in effect, he means is this. We do have a high priest who is thoroughly able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He is fully able to identify with you and me in the struggles, the problems we have, the weaknesses which beset us, the tasks which seem to overwhelm us. He is able to do so, and he is qualified to do so. And the reason is, he has experienced human suffering. He has lived as man, for he was man. He experienced human growth, human development. He grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and his fellow human beings. Through all the processes which that involves, he experienced bereavement. His legal father, Joseph, we know, died sometime during his youth. He faced testing, hunger, thirst, he faced frustration and disappointment. He even, we may say, faced depression and potential disillusionment. There's a passage there in Isaiah chapter 49. I was actually thinking of using that as the reading today, referring to the suffering servant of Isaiah, a figure cannot really be fulfilled by Isaiah, nor by Israel, nor by any other figure other than Christ himself. And in chapter 49, the servant says, Surely I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. And it was said to him, It is too light a thing that you should be my, uh, my, uh, the one to restore the, lost, the tribes of Israel, I will give you as a light to the Gentiles, to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus faced great grief at the grave of Lazarus. He wept 
He was torn inwardly. Garden of Gethsemane, he recoiled from the ordeal which was before him. That kind of attitude is not sinful, it is human. Because death is the negation of what God intended for the human race. And in a sinful world, it is right, as Jesus did, to be filled with righteous anger, to drive out the money changers from the temple. Be angry, Paul says. Yes, be angry in certain cases. Are you not angry to know that eight million unborn children have been slaughtered since the abortion was legitimized? What do we do? Shrug our shoulders with indifference? Of course not. Be angry, but do not sin. And Jesus experienced to the full the disappointment, the frustration of a world which was unbelieving, of disciples which were, who were feckless, many of whom be, turned away from him, and some who betrayed him. I have spent my strength for nothing. It says there of the suffering servant. Depression, for example, is not inherently sinful at all. It's part of being human and suffering the chemical imbalances which we face in a world which has been affected by the sin of Adam. And Jesus took our griefs. He bore our sorrows. He carried them and, and, and experienced them. He is qualified to help us. Not only is he able as the Son of God, but he's experienced the sorrows, the pitfall, yet without sin, without a moment. And he felt it, may I say, more severely, those testings, far more severely than any one of us can possibly imagine. Try, for example, walking into the teeth of a gale force wind. You feel its, its force against you buffeting your body in a way which you would never do if you simply gave in to it and submitted to it. Jesus faced temptation to the nth degree and resisted it fully and completely and therefore felt its force in a way which is far, far greater than you or I have ever done. And he remembers that. He does not forget the sorrows he endured. He does not forget the temptations which were brought to bear upon him. He does not forget the cross on which he hung. He remembers our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Let us therefore grasp hold of our confession. We have one, our Saviour, who knows our condition, who remembers it and is able, utterly, totally, comprehensively to deal with it. He's done so definitively on the cross he continues to do so day by day, moment by moment, as we live on.
Secondly, and finally, the author exhorts us to confident communion. Verse 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help at exactly the right time. Let us draw near and do so with confidence. There was a a French Roman Catholic commentator, uh, Cézlav Spieck, who wrote that this was a revolution in the fundamental concept of religion. Radical. And the reason is, all religions, to a greater or lesser extent, involve a human attempt to try to appease God and gain his approval. And in the Old Testament, indeed, quite unique, the Old Testament compared with the others, but there, there were keep-out signs everywhere. At Mount Sinai, when the Ten Commandments were given, there were boundaries placed around the mountain. Any living creature which transgressed those boundaries was to be killed. Moses himself said he was terrified, utterly terrified. And then you have the temple. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. He could only do so once a year. He could only do so with the blood of sacrifice. The people were excluded. And indeed, the temple, there was the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles were prevented from entering the temple proper. They could only circulate on the, on the outside. Women were excluded. Only the high priest, we mentioned, could enter the Holy of Holies. The rest of Israel was excluded. Keep out. Some of us are of a, an age when perhaps we could remember how um, wherever you went, whether there was a, any form of grass available, there were signs, keep off the grass. It seemed to have been the common place for a couple, probably 20, 25 years after World War II. Um, the, England is very much uh, focused on keeping out. Um, exclusion is the name of the game. Go to Lord's, for example, Lord's Cricket Ground. Um, no, the rank and file can't enter the pavilion at all. Only members of the MCC, or I'm a member of Middlesex County Cricket Club. I can go there when Middlesex are playing, but not at other times. Keep out, it's reserved for the special, the elite, the members only. And that really sums up, it sums up even the Old Testament let alone other religious beliefs. But with Christ, all that is finished. The veil of the temple was torn in two the moment he died. The way was open. No longer the privilege exclusively of the high priest. And he ascended those to the right hand of the Father. He raised our human nature in the clouds to God's right hand. 
as the hymn writer puts it. Man with God is now on the throne because there in the very presence of God is one who is human. The Son of God has taken our nature permanently into union and there he is inseparably, as always, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The way is open. And the invitation is in believing in him to be united to Christ because he is the head of that team, that corporate body. And precisely because he is there, so in principle are we. A week ago, there was an amazing game of cricket in which England, against all the odds, managed to recover from almost certain defeat to beat the Australians. And when Ben Stokes hit Pat Cummings through the covers to win the game, England won the game. It was Stokes who made the, the hit. It was Stokes who, who, who brought England out of almost certain defeat to victory. But it was England who won the game. And all in the team won because of Stokes' incredible innings. Jesus has won the victory. And those who are in his team, who are incorporated into him, who are one with him, have won too. He is at the right hand of God. Humanity is on the throne. The way is open. And so it is possible, and indeed it is, a realis it is real, for us to have the same identical relation to God the Father as the Eternal Son does. He, he of course, by nature, from eternity, we by adoption. That's why we pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. Our Father. That was radical. For Jesus to call God his Father was something astounding. Oh, Israel is described in, in one sense as the child of God in the Old Testament in Hosea. But for an individual to say that, but now we can as well. We say, our Father, as Paul says, in Christ, by one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, we both, Jew and Gentile, wherever we are, whatever our background, have access by one Spirit to the Father. The way is open. The keep-out signs are down. They are no longer there for all who trust in Christ. No more barriers. So therefore, why, the author says, why contemplate shrinking away when the way is open to God? What else can achieve that? What else of, of today's ideologies can possibly effect what Christ has already done? What prospect can they hold, for example, before the grave, before death? before suffering? What comfort can Marxism give to those who are dying? What comfort and encouragement can the philosophy of Richard Dawkins provide to those who are suddenly bereaved? They can present 
ostensibly and falsely a universe which is harsh and meaningless and ultimately brutal. The Christian faith presents a universe at the heart of which is love, the love which God himself is, the, the life which God is, which in turning away from God, as Adam did, was a choice for death. Christ is the living God. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. And he rose from the dead, ascended to the Father. I wonder, I'm sure in a congregation this size, there are some for whom there are struggles going on. The writer says, draw near. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, trusting in Jesus Christ, who is able and qualified to send grace in time of need, mercy and favor appropriate for the time and the need of the moment. The invitation is there. The barriers are down. Access is available. Christ has brought it about. He ever lives to make intercession for us, the author will say. That does not mean that he pleads before the Father for us. It is not to be equated with the kind of prayers which we make. You know, we have Bill Smith, who's suffering from what appears to be in terminal cancer, and we pray that if it be your will, may he be healed. We have to qualify it because we do not know. The intercession which is spoken about there is the very fact that Jesus Christ is there with the Father. As the Westminster uh, Larger Catechism puts it, how does Christ make intercession? by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father. He is there. He is one with the Father in being. He is the eternal God. And he is man. There, intimately and inseparably with God. And so too are all who trust in Jesus Christ. Paul says we are seated with him in heavenly places, even as we face the aches and pains, the struggles, the, uh, the, the employment problems, the personal relationships which have turned sour, the struggle to pay mortgages and other bills, the questions over our future, the regrets over the past, whatever it may be, whatever the problem we are simultaneously believing in Christ there with him. Why shrink back? And indeed, if we do not at this particular moment believe in Jesus Christ, does that not demonstrate that Christ himself is utterly and totally adequate, not only to bring you into relation with the living God, but to bring you life, to, to turn around your course of 
alienation from God, which is a choice for death, not life. The way is open. The barriers are down. There is help. There is someone at God's right hand who created and ru- the universe and rules it and who has gone through it all himself, able and qualified to grant us all that we need. So then, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive grace to help us in our time of need. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have made full and complete provision for the great need of humanity, of deliverance, deliverance from the consequences of sin and from sin itself. You, in place of death, you have brought life. In place of hopelessness and despair, you have brought deliverance and confidence, not only for the immediate future, but for all eternity. We pray that you would enable us, each one here today, to entrust ourselves by your grace to Christ our Lord and to go from this place glad in our hearts that you have acted and that you will indeed sustain and help us whatever circumstances we may face. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.